I'm Abigail Alpern-Fish. And I'm Leo Wing. And we are your co-hosts for the first season of Voices for Human Needs, a podcast from the Coalition on Human Needs that serves as a go-to resource for both new and experienced activists working to reduce and end poverty in the United States. This season, we will talk about the most pressing anti-poverty issues currently being debated in Washington, D.C., starting with our first episode's topic, Raising the Federal Minimum Wage. Be sure to stay with us until the end, where our guests will share how listeners like you all can get involved with the Fight 415, and for the idea of one fair wage that we will discuss right after this. People are making six, seven, eight bucks an hour. These first responders, we all clap for as they come down the street because they've allowed us to make it. What's happening? They deserve a minimum wage of $15. Anything below that puts you below the poverty level. A 2021 report from the Brookings Institute found that essential workers comprise about half of all workers in low-paid occupations. Many people working minimum wage jobs often have to worry about the cost of food, are not able to spend the time or money to go to school, and struggle to meet their basic needs. The National Low-Income Housing Coalition reported in 2020 that full-time minimum wage workers cannot afford to rent even a one-bedroom apartment in 95% of U.S. counties. The support for the movement to raise the federal minimum wage have been growing for years. It's true that the pandemic and the poverty causes by it have moved the issue to front and center. But this is hardly a new issue. The federal minimum wage have been stuck at $7.25 per hour since 2009. And even worse, the sub-minimum wage for tip worker has been $2.13 an hour since 1991 losing almost half of its value due to inflation over the past 30 years. A recent report published in March 2021 from Justin Schweitzer at the Center for American Progress found that poverty rates are lower for everyone working in states that have instituted a one-fair wage, while also boosting job growth in key tipped industries like leisure and hospitality. And now, with the Democratic majority in Congress, Raising the federal minimum wage is very high on the priority list among advocates, activists, and policymakers around the country. Here in D.C. and across the country, the fight is strong among policy advocates, organizers, business owners, and workers themselves for a raised federal minimum wage. In this episode, we will hear from voices from across the country, including from a national policy advocate in Virginia, a small business owner in Texas, and a former restaurant owner turned organizer in Washington, D.C. We will learn about the history of the federal minimum and subminimum wage, and we will also learn more about the disproportionate impacts of a low federal minimum wage for women and BIPOC workers. Let's first talk about the Raise the Wage Act, which is the current legislation being considered in Congress to increase the federal minimum wage. The Raise the Wage Act is a really important piece of legislation that will do some important things. It will gradually raise the minimum wage to $15 by 2025. It will gradually phase out sub-minimum wages for tipped workers, youth workers, and people with disabilities. And finally, it will index the minimum wage once it reaches 15 in order to make sure that it never stagnates again, like it has for the past 11 years, but really for the past 40 years. Because in all of that time, there's really never been an increase of the minimum wage that was sufficient 
to make up for the ground that was lost to inflation, the rises of cost of living, and the growth of average wages. That's Judy Conti, the Government Affairs Director at the National Employment Law Project. Judy spoke with us about why the Raise the Wage Act would be crucial to lifting millions of workers, specifically women and women of color, out of poverty. I think when people hear the top line impacts of the Raise the Wage Act, it, it makes it even more compelling than it, than it should already sound. If the Raise the Wage Act was passed, 32 million workers, which represent 21% of the United States workforce, would get a raise. 60% of these workers are women. 31% are Black. 26% are Hispanic. So we see that it is something that will have a disproportionate impact on women workers and on workers of color. The workers impacted by this bill would have an average raise of about $3,300 a year by 2025. And again, when you're in the the bottom 21% of the wages in this country, $3,300 is a lot of money. 19 million of the workers who would receive raises, 32 million overall, 19 million of them are essential and frontline workers. So we talk about how much these workers are heroes and how much praise they deserve. They don't deserve praise, they deserve a raise. They deserve praise and a raise. 3.7 million people will be raised out of poverty, and 1.3 million of those are children. And finally, 70% of tipped workers in this country are women. So you'll see that eliminating the subminimum wage will be a huge increase in wages for women across the board. Um, And it is something that the National Women's Law Center says is one of the single most effective things we can do to close the gender wage gap in this country. As of now, the Raise the Wage Act bill was passed out of the House of Representatives with votes from every Democratic member as a part of the American Rescue Plan. However, to the disappointment of many advocates, the provision to raise the federal minimum wage was not included in the Senate version of the American Rescue Plan because of a certain parliamentary rule in the Senate. In addition, there are not currently 60 senators willing to vote to pass this legislation through, including eight Democratic senators currently on the fence. But considering all the significant impacts of the legislation Judy has shared so far, what are hesitations or objections from members of Congress to passing the Raise the Wage Act? There are some members who are still not fully comfortable with $15. And unfortunately, part of the the opposition to this is talking about raising the minimum wage to $15 in a pandemic, which is not what this bill would do, right? This is a gradual increase over the next few years. Um, And it is phased in so that businesses can adjust to it. If you look at what $15 in 2025 is now, it's roughly about $13 an hour. There is nowhere in this country that an individual can be self-sufficient on $13 an hour. They can't afford housing, food, healthcare, so we're, we're working to bring all of that data to members who are uncomfortable with $15 an hour and showing them in stark detail that this is not a radical proposal by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, this is really the bare minimum of what people in the lowest cost of living areas of the country would need to live even a marginally self-sustaining life by 2025. How exactly do you and the National Employment Law Project, as well as other national policy advocates, convey to members of Congress why the federal minimum wage should be raised? 
raising the minimum wage for tipped workers, for disabled workers, for all workers, because of the disproportionate impacts that it have on people of color and women, it's really a, a pressing civil rights issue. And we have to be clear about it. The minimum wage has been kept low for as long as it has and as low as it has, because it is a wage that predominantly goes to women and people of color. And it's not that we don't value the work, it's that we don't value the workers. And we're making that case very clearly. In particular, around tipped workers as well, that exclusion from the full minimum wage came about in reconstruction times when people didn't want to pay formerly enslaved people any wages at all. And because so many of them went into service industries, the nation struck this horrible bargain, this horrible compromise where um, they were allowed to just be paid in tips and not be paid any wages at all. So, you know, the, the, the current tipped minimum wage policy is something that directly grows out of slavery. It owes its legacy to slavery and the unwillingness to pay formerly enslaved people any wages. So to continue to pay that um, is, is just an atrocity. So we're, we're bringing the economic arguments to members. We're bringing the moral arguments to members. We're making them realize that this is a racial and gender justice imperative. And, and they can't say that they are for racial and gender justice while standing opposed to raising the minimum wage, particularly for tipped workers. Wow, that just answered any and all follow-up questions I initially had, so thank you so much. Indeed, presenting both the moral arguments, the economic data, and impact stories to members of Congress are a powerful advocacy tool to demonstrate the broad support for this movement. That's why we're so excited to talk to Adam Orman. Adam is a restaurant owner from Austin, Texas, he will share with us his story, his perspective about the One Fair Wage movement, and his restaurant. Adam is also an advocate with Main Street Alliance and Good Work Austin. We will get to that in a bit. My name is Adam Orman, and I am a uh, the co-owner of Locadoro Restaurant in Austin, Texas. The two things that I like everybody to know about Locadoro is uh, there are, there's there's some things we won't compromise on in the kitchen and on the service side. And in the kitchen, um, we really make an effort to bring in as little product as possible uh, that's already processed. We make everything in-house, our breads, our cheese, fresh cheeses, pasta, vinegars, liqueurs, and take a lot of pride in that. And that's kind of the way in which we're Italian. We buy from, uh, we buy locally and we and we really try and celebrate ingredients in the simplest ways possible. On the service side, we never wanted to pay anybody $213 an hour. Texas is a, is a $213 an hour state, and we knew that we could figure out a way to get everybody a base that was at least over the federal minimum wage and include a service charge uh, that we would be able to distribute to all the staff and figure out how to guarantee them a living wage and then start to also add on more benefits. So never going below eight when we opened and now we're up to 15. No, never going below 15 is the line that we will not cross. Um, so if you're in Austin and you want to be a part of a restaurant that is doing either of those two things or both of those two things, um, please come visit. When I met the folks from the Restaurant Opportunities Center and started learning more about the racist history of tipping. Adam just mentioned the Restaurant Opportunity Center. These are groups that support businesses to find a fair wage model that works for them. 
the tip minimum wage comes from the era of reconstruction when and it was an excuse for employers to put slaves back to work at a zero dollar wage where they were just going to be compensated by tips and that in the last you know 150 years that zero dollars has gone all the way up to 213 um it became even more clear that that was not something that our business could be associated with and then you see so much uh, discrimination embedded in it that white male servers make the most tips, that tipping has a lot more to do based on studies by the Economic Policy Institute with the gender and the race of the server than it does with the quality of the service. Um, and finally, um, the links between sexual harassment and tipping um, and creating discrimination in the workplace, which I think there's a lot of proof that 213 an hour does. Um, you are not only at the, at the mercy of customers who have their own biases, and, but also the mercy of your manager and your, your coworkers and the cooks to, to make sure that you get a good station, a good section, a good night to be able to make enough money to pay your rent. There's so much room in there for discrimination to um, find its way into the process. And that's not what compensation should be like. We want people, we want to have a neighborhood restaurant that keeps staff, that keeps professionals who know, who, who know you when you come. Come in. And the only way to do that is to treat them that way. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing all of those insights and about how your restaurant is operating and really making sure to, to provide your workers with a fair wage. I'm wondering what you would say or what you do often say to those that might argue that small businesses will struggle greatly with a raise in the federal minimum wage. And you know, you already have clear examples of how it's working for your business, but what would your initial response be to that question? There are a couple of reasons that I think small businesses will uh, thrive with a with a higher minimum wage. Um, typically, small businesses are paying higher wages than um, than a lot of national chains right now. Anyway, we are embedded in our communities. It is harder for us to attract talent because we don't have the megaphone that some of the chains do. So we know that it is better for our community to have our employees making more money and getting out in the, in the community and spending that money. So I think that raising the wage will actually help small business owners because it will put everybody on the same playing field as I, as I mentioned before. Um, there is a lot of evidence, even recently from a Newsweek piece in states with one fair wage, they actually see more growth because there's more consumer spending. So if we know that our employees aren't making the bare minimum, aren't on government assistance because they have, a, they have better wages, they're out there. They're out there spending money. And I'll go back to what I said before. If it happens across the board, there are ways to adapt. There are going to be folks out there like One Fair Wage, like Main Street Alliance that can help you adapt, that will consult and help you come up with the model uh, that will work for you. Amazing. And one additional question is how has your restaurant been doing during the pandemic and what challenges are you continuing to face um, or successes that you're <laughs> celebrating? During the pandemic, we have become something completely different and we dabbled with takeout and we had a, a period when we were doing subscriptions, uh, subscription boxes, um, and we're now about to reopen outdoors. But the bulk of what we're doing has been um, work with the city and the school district to provide meals to address food insecurity. We were a part of, we were the co founders of a nonprofit called Good Work Austin in 2019 that um, came out of, that was dedicated to, or is dedicated to providing support and resources for local businesses that want to. Uh, provide benefits for their for their employees and promote sustainable growth in Austin. 
And right after the pandemic, Good Work Austin worked to create a community kitchen that would advocate for the city to uh, award contracts to local restaurants. And in, instead of you know the, some of the national chains that had been getting them previously. So we've been doing that work since early, since the end of May last year. Our restaurant is a warehouse. Um, it looks much more like a manufacturing plant than it does like a dining room. But we've been able to get about two dozen restaurants uh, involved in that. During the ice storm in February, we were we worked with over sixty restaurants um, and have provided um, over a million meals. Honestly. You know, at first people used to think this was a, a talking point saying wage justice is economic justice, economic justice is racial justice. No, it is all of it. Wages intersects with everything. Lastly, we spoke to Tropti Patel, the lead organizer of the D.C., Maryland and Virginia area for One Fair Wage. Tropti is also the first Indian American woman to be elected to the Advisory Neighborhood Commission in Washington, D.C., through her personal experience as a tip worker in the restaurant industry, Trupti became an organizer to fight towards a one fair wage. So what is one fair wage? And what is a tip wage? Anyone who receives, according to the U.S. Department of Labor, more than $30 a month in the form of a tip can be classified as a tipped worker and can be by law paid as little as $2.13 an hour. And there are plenty of businesses and corporations that do exploit that um, loophole. In the District of Columbia, which is right here where we all call home, um, 70% of tipped workers are communities of color. And about half of that is actually single um, mothers who are of color. And why are we allowing a workforce that is considered one of the fastest growing economic sectors, but it is one of the lowest paying economic sectors, to allow the continued condoned exploitation of uh, women of color? And what most people don't realize is the person who is, you know, serving you in that restaurant that you're going to eat, nine out of 10 times that restaurant can't even afford to eat the food that they're serving you. And how do you become involved with the movement for one fair wage? I tell everybody, I said I was an accidental worker that fell into the hospitality industry. So um, like many people, I lost my job in the economic meltdown of 2008. Like I was laid off in April of 2009. So my first job in the hospitality sector is I started out as a hostess at this restaurant. And I went from hostess to bartender to server. And so my accidental entry into the tipped worker workforce was in March of 2011. And I literally stayed there until March of 2020. I'd officially spent nine years as a hospitality industry professional. And even though I was a professional, I provided a service. I was able to make good money when I could make it. But for the majority of the time, it was very economically unstable. In those nine years, I was never more insulted, more dehumanized, and 
made to feel that based on my gender and the color of my skin would determine my earning potential. So when I would, you know, be a server, when I was serving, when slash bartending, you know, I would constantly get told like, you sound, oh, I didn't realize how smart you were, you know, and, and, you know, and so like my quip would be back, well, how was I supposed to sound? Judy Conti from NELP also discussed the discrimination that is a direct result of the sub-minimum wage for tip workers. The second thing we're doing is working with folks on this notion of one fair wage, eliminating these sub-minimum wages. And in particular, the one for tipped workers is causing a lot of problems for members. And that's because the National Restaurant Association just throws a lot of money and a lot of falsehoods uh, at this campaign to try to make sure that they keep the minimum wage at $2.13 an hour for tipped workers. Tipped workers are over 70% women. They are disproportionately women and workers of color as a whole. So the sub-minimum wage for tipped workers is really a wage that keeps earnings low for women and people of color. One of the other lies that the National Restaurant Association wants to spread is that if you raise the minimum wage for tipped workers, they won't get tips anymore. And that's not true. The workers are making more overall between wages and tips. Why are we still facilitating, you know, a method of payment that allows for the subjugation and the dehumanization of the largest swath of that working force? Again, that was Trupti Patel. And then women of color, communities of color. It is like we are sitting here. We are still perpetuating the slave master plantation mentality. And frankly, I think this country is better than that. Everybody says, oh, you know, you live paycheck to paycheck. If you're a tipped worker, you're living tip to mouth. That tip's going to, every tip is either going to make or break what you make that day or take home. And it's like when, now that I'm out of it, you get to see like how much of a traumatic experience that is. And that in a, in a way, like you become numb and conditioned to accept it because you know you're you're right now at that point when you're working everybody's working to survive you know and then when you're out of it it's like you start realizing how much injustice you faced in that moment if you're an organization that says hey i'm interested in learning what you want to do get in touch with us we we want you at the table i believe everybody should have a seat at the table like you know we need to be constantly diversifying we need to constantly be aggressive and outreaching and you know proving that you know we are here and we're absolutely inclusive no matter where you are if you see someone who is more vulnerable than you you're supposed to fight for them trapti's story shows us that anyone can take their unique experiences and perspectives and channel them into being an advocate for justice Also, we've heard today how important it is to truly center advocacy, policy, and organizing efforts around people's real and lived experiences. We will end every episode by asking our speakers how our listeners like you can get involved and take action in your local community on the issues that we have discussed. First, let's hear from Trapti. We're three organizers in the DMV region, but we have 6,000 members. 6,000 members and there's three of us. As you can see, that makes it next to impossible for us to call. I mean, if somebody were to say, you know what? 
I can make phone calls, you know, how long they can do. If you can do one day a week, even if you can do once, once a month, that helps us. You help, you help us grow and you help us build power. Wow. Thank you so much, Trupti. We really appreciate your reminder that no one can do this fight alone. We at the Coalition on Human Needs hope that those of you listening are just as inspired to join the individuals, organizations, and coalitions out there who are working for a raised federal minimum wage and to make it more possible for people to be compensated fairly and be able to meet their basic needs. Next, we hear again from restaurant owner Adam Orman. I think that, uh, you know, the phone calls matter. The phone calls to your, to your representatives and your senators matter. They do make a note of how many calls they're getting about these things. So the more you know about wages, and there's a lot of great information out there, the more I think you'll understand, people will understand how big a deal this is to get the minimum wage, how many different pieces of social justice are impacted by raising wages. But the hardest thing you can do, and maybe the, maybe the most significant, is when you go out to eat, you are probably at a place that is paying two thirteen an hour. Tell them, tell them that they shouldn't. And are you guys paying, do you pay two thirteen an hour? Will open their eyes. It's, it's a big lift, but uh, it, that, is, that, is, that is the way that, you know, everybody can make a difference. That is so great and such great advice that everyone has the power to do. If there's some place that's your favorite place you go and you learn that maybe they're not a part of this movement, use your voice in that community and make clear that not that you're going to boycott the place, but that you really want to encourage and inform the place that you are supporting and that they're supporting you, that there's a better way to do it for the people that are helping that process. So I really appreciate that insight. Yeah. They probably don't know. They probably, they, they may not know the history of tipping. They may not know that there are, you know, multiple ways that they can try and change the way they pay people, all kinds of things. So yeah, just, just being open, having those conversations. And like you said, not boycotting. There are some places you can boycott. <laughs> I'm okay with boycotting some places. I won't name them, but, um, but no, not your favorite place. You want your favorite place just to do better. Yes. That's all we can do is ask to educate and have dialogue about how can we do better? So Amazing. And last but not least, Judy Conti from the National Employment Law Project reminds us why Raise the Wage Act ought to be included in ongoing economic recovery legislation moving forward. I, w- I will end by saying that, you know, we, we talk a lot about how we need to build back better in terms of our infrastructure in this country. The most important part of this country's infrastructure is its people. So we can't build back better if we don't raise wages, especially for those who are struggling most of all. We're in this bizarre pandemic and recession where people are struggling, yet the stock market is booming, where the top 5% have added to their wealth. It's time for that to be shared with people who are struggling. And you need to raise your voice and make it heard. Call your legislators write letters to the editors of your local papers saying that you support the Raise the Wage Act and that you demand your legislators do the same as well. Reach out to organizations like NELP and the Fight for 15 that are on the front lines of this battle and look for groups in your own states that are fighting these battles as well and be part of that fight. It is just unconscionable that in 2021, when the stock market is booming, when there is so much wealth in corporate America, that the minimum wage in this country is $7.25 an hour. It is simply immoral. And we need to raise our voices and make sure that we pass the Raise the Wage Act. 
We hope you enjoyed our first episode of the Voices for Human Needs podcast. Please subscribe and follow us now wherever you get your podcasts, share with a friend or colleague, and stay tuned for our next episode. Also, you can learn more about today's speakers and actions you can take in the fight to raise the federal minimum wage by visiting our page on the Voices for Human Needs blog at bit.ly slash Voices for Human Needs. And finally, don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can search the Coalition on Human Needs. I promise we'll be the first one that pops up. Till next time.